Um, well, as I get situated up here, you go ahead and open your Bibles to um, Ezekiel 37, and then also put a finger in Ephesians 2. Uh, this morning's sermon will be based out of both texts, and actually uh, the next uh, few sermons, as we will go into greater detail into Ephesians 2 and even Ezekiel 37, uh, will be out of uh, those two texts also. So it's going to be a time of, of connection and reflection as we see the continuity of God's Word as well as, as the beauty of progressive revelation that we have in Scripture. Uh, as we look at or been looking and working our way through Ephesians, we're still in that first half section of the book, where in those first three chapters, Paul is laying out his doctrinal and Christological uh, foundation, whereby uh, the book then turns, or the letter then turns in the last three chapters to the new life found in Christ. So the foundation is Christ, and then what then of this life we have in him that he uh, so often references. And as we've been working our way through this epistle, we've been uh, I've been trying to unify it under the heading, the exalted Christ. So as we go through each section, we're, we see different aspects of the exalted Christ. In chapter 1, uh, which we closed out the last time I preached, we, we saw the heavenly witness to the exalted Christ. And Paul took us into the heavenly places and showed us the Trinitarian operations of our salvation, both intra and extra and at extra actions of God. And we rejoice to hear how our salvation was not something that came upon our Lord, but that he planned from the very beginning. And But now as we transition into the second uh, aspect of the exalted Christ, chapters 2 and 3, we move to the earthly witness of the exalted Christ. We had the heavenly witness in chapter 1, but now as we move into chapters 2 and 3, we're going to address the earthly, or Paul addresses the earthly witness of the exalted Christ. As uh, Pastor Dana said when he introduced uh, the Acts, the book, uh, the Acts of the Risen Lord or the Acts of the Apostles, we recognize that uh, the Lord continues to be with his church as he said. That he continues to provide a witness to his exaltation in the church. And Paul writes of such things uh, here in chapters 2 and 3 of Ephesians. We will be reading progressively through our text this morning. So let us pause and beseech our Lord's blessing and help upon our time this morning. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word Thank you that as we read it, we don't read it as words of men, but we read it as words of God, whereby the Spirit of God worked through the inspiration of men to bring us 
a single revelation. Preeminently a revelation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the redemption found in Him. Lord, as we look into such things, we ask your hand of blessing upon it. We ask that you would help us to understand it. You would also help us to live according to it. For your glory alone, we ask these things. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it may help ourselves to spend a little bit of time this morning, especially as uh, this is more of an overview of these two chapters, is to orient ourselves to Ezekiel chapter 37. And in order to do that, we would go back in our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33 gives us some historical context to this prophecy. Ezekiel 33, in, in specifically in verse 21, we see that in the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. So in uh, here in Ezekiel 33, verse 21, we have the historical context of this part of Ezekiel's prophecy. But it's not, uh, it, it could be considered during the destruction before news actually came. It's certainly not after, and I'll give you uh, my justification for that. But it, he continues on in verse 22. Now the hand of the Lord was upon me the evening before the fugitive came. So we have the evening before the fugitive came, and he opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. And then uh, prophecy is given to Ezekiel in the, in the following chapters, all the way through Ezekiel 39. And it, at the end of Ezekiel 39, at the beginning of chapter 40, we read these words. In the, 12th, in the, in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, after the city was struck down on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me into the city. So we have a post-destruction uh, prophecy there. And so in Ezekiel 33 through 39, we have either uh, when this, the city is being destroyed Potentially right after, but it seems to, to me that it's, it comes right before because what the Lord is doing is he's prophesying of such things so that the people will know that Ezekiel is speaking by the Lord. And he's not just recording history. He's, he's prophesying of what's taking place. And as what we find in prophecy is not only is a historical account of what's going to happen, but, but an explanation of, of why it's going to happen and then oftentimes even further on as to then what comes next. So the Lord is speaking to the exiles in Babylon through Ezekiel about the destruction of Jerusalem so that when it comes upon Jerusalem, they would know where their hope should lie. Uh, there's an assumption that uh, the 
Israelites had that their time of exile was going to be short. They thought it, they would be taken into exile and be, and be brought back, that it wouldn't be a long time. And so we have uh, concurrent prophecies in Jeremiah where he tells them, oh, no, you, this isn't going to be a short exile. This is going to be a long exile. And he gives, the Lord gives instructions to them about how they should act during their time of exile. And, and so in, doing, in thinking that it would be short, they find that uh, they're waiting for them to come back into the land. But then they're going to hear news that Jerusalem will have been destroyed. That the temple will, will have been raised by the Babylonians. And you can imagine in the hearts and the minds of the Israelites what that would do to them. For uh, they were to look upon uh, the temple as a place where God dwells. They would look especially uh, in Jerusalem as that holy city whereby the Lord had set them apart for uh, his own people, that they would worship him. And so the Lord is going uh, to prophesy to the people for a specific purpose so that they would not lose hope during their time of exile. Though Jerusalem is destroyed, though the, the temple is destroyed, their king has been carried away. They themselves have been carried away. They may succumb to losing hope during this time, especially if they have put it in temporary things like temples built by hands or their own homes that they built. So the Lord tells them that he will do a few things. He's going to provide a few things for them. And beginning in Ezekiel 34, in verse 11, he tells them specifically he's going to provide them first a new shepherd or a chief shepherd. It says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then again in chapter, I mean in verse 23 of the same chapter, he tells them, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So the first thing he says is that a shepherd king will be provided from the Lord, resulting in a new or second exodus. Right? They'll be, they'll be drawn out from where they've been scattered and brought back. They will be rescued. That he will set over them a shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And the Lord says that I, the Lord, will be their God. This is not only language of a shepherd king and language of a second exodus, but this is a language of a new covenant. This is covenant language. Look in uh, verse 25 of Ezekiel 34. 
I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and I will make them in the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their seasons. They shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And the earth shall yield its increase. And they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke. And deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. Again, Exodus language, right? With a mighty hand, the Lord, with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, the Lord redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Here, this shepherd king will redeem Israel out of a different slavery, resulting in a new Exodus under the banner or under the establishment of a new covenant, a covenant of peace. Now, this covenant would come through this king. So the Lord says he's going to provide them a shepherd king resulting in a second exodus. He's going to establish a new covenant through this king. And then in chapter 36, he tells them as, as he can, as he said also in chapter 34, that he will also provide a land or a kingdom for the king to rule. Look at it in chapter 36, verse 8. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. So this land will be also a part of what the Lord will provide. But the land is in reference to the people and their king. Because he says in verse 9, For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. And I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. And then it says, The city shall be inhabited, and the waste places rebuilt. So the Lord's going to provide a shepherd king, resulting in a second exodus. He's going to establish a new covenant through this king. There's going to be a land given or a kingdom for the king to rule. And then when we get into uh, the latter part of 36, beginning in verse 22, we see that the Lord will also provide kingdom citizens. He says, therefore, say to the house of Israel in verse 22, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. For the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And, for, and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So these kingdom citizens will be, uh, our God will be a king to these citizens. That they'll be given a new spirit, a new heart to walk in his statutes, to be careful to observe all his rules. And there will be this ingathering from the nations. And there will be this vindication of God's holiness because of it. So as we turn to Ezekiel 37, with that sort of as the background, or with that as the background, God continues to give explanation as to how, or greater description on how this people are going to be gathered. What will it be like? What will, what will, these, uh, what will be the result of this? Well, there's uh, five headings or four headings that you can write down or that I will be going through uh, to guide us through Ezekiel 37 and Ephesians 2. The first one is resurrection, then explanation, then unification, then glorification. So with your finger in Ezekiel 37 and Ephesians 2, I'm going to read for us the first 10 verses of Ezekiel 37 and the first seven verses of Ephesians 2. And we'll see uh, if there's any correlation. Well, uh, my intention is to show you the correlation here, to show you that the Spirit of the Lord, working through the instrument of Paul, continues the revelation of God about the redemption of his people, the, populate, the populating of this kingdom, the, the enthronement of this king and the result of this act of God. Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and sent me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and I shall live and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied and I was as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied and he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then in Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What we see is that the focus of both of these passages is not the dead, not necessarily the dead status of a sinful people, but rather the divine work of granting new life to his people. That is God's decisive action of recreation for his people. So though there is a very clearness in the status or in the state of these people prior to the Lord acting, in that in Ezekiel 37, you have a, a pile of dry bones. They, the dryness of the bones was in relation to, they weren't, these weren't just like newly dead bones. They weren't fresh. They were old and they were dry. There was no life in them at all. And so Paul, carrying on this, whether in his mind or, or, or we need only to conclude in, uh, in what we would call the mind of the divine author, this continued idea of death to life, of resurrection. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the bones of the valley of bones in Ezekiel 37. Though uh, in a first case application to the people of Israel, where they were dead in their trespasses and sins, they had rejected their God, they had, they had profaned the name of the Lord among the nations. And yet the Lord says he's going to act decisively. And this act would be a recreation or a new creation. What we see is a stark contrast between the present reality of Israel and God's future promise of the nation's great restoration in the vision of dry bones. It underscores human impotence and skylines divine omnipotence. The underlying idea in, in both Ezekiel 37 and Ephesians 2 appears to be identical. Salvation and unity are not something that humans can achieve. It is purely the gift of God. What happens in Ezekiel 37, as I said, is new creation from death to life. But it anticipates its final fulfillment in the messianic age. Remember, coming before that, this is a this is a a, a creation of a people for a king or, or kingdom citizens for a kingdom. And so it anticipates its its fulfillment in the messianic age. 
Or in Ephesians 2, it's depicted as having already been brought about through the redemptive work of Christ. See, whether what we see in Ephesians is that there's a, a pointing back. There's a, this has happened. Here's the reality of the uh, effects or the reality of the inauguration of the new covenant in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That now he's ascended on high and he's sent the Spirit to indwell his people. And this indwelling is a new life. It's a resurrection. As anticipated in Ezekiel 37. We, may, we, we come to the verse 10 in Ezekiel 37 and we, we have an exceedingly great army. But then uh, the Lord brings that army under one banner, under a house. In verse 11 through 14, he explains this vision. He says, Then he said to me in Ezekiel 37, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord." Now, I may have gotten ahead of ourselves as we are reading in Ezekiel 37. And it, and it time and time again references Israel, the whole house of Israel at time and time uh, references the land of Israel. And so the question is, is are we conflating scripture here to make it say what it's not saying? Am I saying that Israel doesn't have a correlation here to the house of Israel, the actual physical descendants of Abraham? Am I saying that the land here doesn't have correlation to that land of Canaan given to the people? And that we just wash it away and replace it with the church because Christ has come. That's not what I'm promoting here this morning not a replacement theology as some people accuse us of doing but there's a there's a fulfillment that's anticipated here that the people of israel would have been anticipating that the lord would fulfill this and we hold that as we read scripture as we read it forwards and backwards up and down left and right we recognize that the Lord is always marking his fulfillment. He's telling his people, I have done what I, what I said I have done. And we can even reference this completely into the house of Israel as Paul in another letter wrote to the Romans in 11, saying that as he redeems even the sons, the physical sons of Abraham today, as he's ingathering the physical descendants of Abraham today, he's fulfilling his promise to Israel. But we also know 
that Israel was considered a son of God. And so that there was a true son of Israel. There was, a, there was only one true Israelite, namely Christ. And so through him, all these things are gathered together and held together. The other thing we ask ourselves is we recognize there is distinct blessings being uh, purported here in Ezekiel 37. A spirit being put in them that the Lord would be their Lord. That there would be resurrection. Brothers and sisters, we read in other, even Old Testament prophets, that these are blessings of the new covenant. These are blessings found in Christ alone. And so we follow the arc of scripture we follow the story of scripture and we and we read these and we read of a covenant of peace to be made with this people and we let scripture tell us what that covenant of peace will be read in ephesians chapter 2 in verse 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good work, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul going back to this theme of, of law and gospel of uh, do this and live in that covenant of works and yet live according to a gift in the gospel. So we see the correlation here between these explanations. That he says, I will do it in Ezekiel 37. I won't do it on, for you, but it will be me acting. Paul says, not by works. So that no one should boast. We even, in a uh, tangential way, we even see this fulfilled at the resurrection, or excuse me, at the death of Christ. When graves are literally opened, Israelites that were dead walk the earth again. The Lord was, was showing that what I have spoken of, I am doing now in Christ. What is the result of this act of God, this sovereign act of God? Unification is the result. Look at in Ezekiel 37, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them to one another into one stick, that they may, come, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, Will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join him with the stick of Judah and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. When, Jude, when the sticks on which you write are in your hand before your eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. We see that refrain repeated again and again in Ezekiel 37 to, to as I see it and agree with the commentators that say it, to bring us back up to the framework by which this has been given, the framework of, of a new covenant, the framework whereby the Israelites were divided into two kingdoms. They had, the northern kingdom had rebelled against the southern kingdom. They had rejected the line of David as their king. They had established false worship. We, we recognize that with the woman at the well and Jesus where they established a, a different place of worship. They had intermarried with those around them. They had become like the nations to the southern kingdom. So the Lord says one day you will be united with them again under one house, under one kingdom. Look in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 therefore remember that at one time you gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separated from christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world but now in christ jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You recognize that though Paul is not using the same imagery of sticks, he's using the, th the same thematic idea of unification. He's proclaiming that there will be a people unified in one spirit, under one king, in one place, the household of God. 
Listen to one observation. The theme of peace was probably a stunning one to both the readers of Ezekiel and of Ephesians when it is considered against each of their historical contexts. In the days of Ezekiel, the thread of their history with God was perceived to be irrevocably broken. Everything seemed to be at an end. The catastrophe of the exile negated any kind of hope for Israel. Similarly, peace was a thing difficult to expect at the time during which Ephesians was written. With all the apparent divisions and resentments between the Jews and the Gentiles, which were seemingly impossible to overcome. What we see in both passages is that practical application of vertical reconciliation. I will be a God to you or you will, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's vertical reconciliation. Well, the practical application of vertical reconciliation is that for everyone who's been vertically reconciled, there is horizontal reconciliation. There is no wall of hostility. There's, there is nothing that separates us from each other. Nothing can separate us, no ethnicities, no national pride, no any other thing constructed under heaven can separate us because we have those that have all professed Christ have been reconciled to God and so we have been reconciled to one another. In Ezekiel 37, two sticks become one into one household and Ephesians 2, two peoples become one under one household. Ephesians includes the past reality of believers with regard to God's covenant with Israel. In in verse 12, the Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise. But the Gentiles, however, says says Ephesians, are brought into the people of God through the cross of Jesus Christ and thus no longer foreigners and aliens with Israel. So under the new king, Israel is reconstituted. Though, again, Paul recognizes, though uh, geopolitical, Israel will lose its constitution in that way under God as God's people. Faithful Israel will remain as Israel, though with an inclusion of Gentiles. Gentiles given the Spirit of God, the same Spirit of God, now included in the covenant, now now unified under a singular king to exist in a singular kingdom as a singular people. And as we finish off Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 24, my servant David, or excuse me, in verse 24 through 28, we see the consummated end, this glorification. My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. And they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. 
and David my servant shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Turn it to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This idea of this consummated glory, where in the fullness of the age, all the believers in Christ will constitute a sanctuary, a new temple, so that even now we may rightly call this a new temple service of the Lord as we gather as true believers in Christ. Every temple needs a priest. This new temple has for its priest the great high priest, namely Christ. And something that I was even just thinking about this morning as we read in Leviticus. That if a lower priest, one who is in the line of Aaron, and we know Christ is, is a greater high priest for he's in the line of Melchizedek. If a lower priest could not join himself to a divorcee and so defile himself, then a people who have been divorced from God could not as that same constituted people be then joined to the high priest Christ it's why we recognize as we read through Hebrews that when it speaks of this priestly language that this person that, that, that the people who are of this priest are represented by this priest are cleansed but that they're reconstituted into true Israel. In scripture, it's often designated God's temple as the house of God or the sanctuary or God's dwelling place. In Ezekiel, there's prophecy that God will dwell with his people again. And this is found typologically with the Messiah who is the cornerstone of this temple and of which the redeemed community is being built together as. So then when we look at Acts chapter 2, which we'll be reading, I would assume, next Lord's Day in our New Testament reading, as we look at Acts 2, we can look at it as almost the antithesis of Ezekiel chapter 10, where the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of God, leaves the temple no longer indwelling it, no longer being the place of God's dwelling. But in Acts 2, we have 
the descending of the Spirit upon all those present. The descending of the Spirit, the glory of God dwelling amongst his people again. We see that Paul is saying that which was prophesied beforehand, that which was typified in Israel will come to its full flower and fruition in Christ. That God will dwell amongst his people again. That his people will be built up together as a holy temple in the Lord. For Christ himself is the cornerstone. We're going to go through Ephesians 2 and and be referent to Ezekiel 37 much slower in the coming weeks. We'll take it in smaller chunks. But I wanted to give us this overview of these two chapters and their correlation together. I didn't take the time this morning, but there's vocabulary that also correlates to one another. Not just themes as we kind of did this morning, but there's, there's, there's word uses usage also but we may be looking at this this morning and and I certainly hope we're giving glory to God for the beauty of his redemption the beauty of of his revelation we're giving uh, glory to God because most of us here as I understand it are of the Gentiles that we are included now into the household of God through Christ. But I'm going to go beyond that also and and look at two points of contemplation that we may think about as we go from here this morning. As we contemplate the reality of Ephesians 2, we're thankful that Paul kept writing Ephesians 3, though not literally Ephesians 3. He continues to write. The first thing that I think we should contemplate about is this idea of rejoicing and resting. I'm not sure if any of you feel similar to me after a week in this life, but oftentimes it's tiring. We wrestle with the flesh daily. We wrestle with the world in, in the images that come into our, into our eyes whether through screens or, or billboards or other places, that the world is just bombarding us. That the prince or the spirit of the power of the air is still the prince of the power of the air for those that are perishing. And so we do battle with the flesh and the world. And sometimes the evil one even visits us in places where we may not fully be aware of it, suggesting to us to look away uh, away from Christ, to think little of sin, to think or think too much of our sin and that it couldn't, or think too little of Christ that our sin could not be forgiven by him. And so we come here this morning 
with all that baggage, so to speak. We come here this morning with spiritual bags under our eyes. Maybe for me, physical bags. And it's with joy that I can read for us Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in, four, beginning in 14, and read of this idea of to rejoice and rest in Christ this morning. For just as those dry bones were never going to move on their own, just as us being dead in our trespasses and sins were never going to come to life without God calling us, prophesying his word over to us, making the spirit come to us from the four corners so that we would be enlivened. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If we've come here physically empty, maybe even spiritually empty from the trials and tribulations of this world. Hear the word of the Lord. That in Christ, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That we may be filled with all the fullness of God. The other thing that can't be overlooked is that there was very clear uh, implication in Ezekiel 37 as well as many other places in Ezekiel and also in Ephesians 2 that that there is a reference to our lives now as exiles of the new creation that we wait for the Lord said he goes to prepare a place he'll bring it with him when he goes or when he comes again we're exiles of of the new creation In Ezekiel 37, he says, I will cause them to obey my commands and walk in my statutes. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. Now may the the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you've been vertically reconciled with God through Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit works in us that which is pleasing in His sight. We would look to God's law and rejoice in that we may now desire to obey it though we will always obey it imperfectly and still require a covering of it. But that scripture doesn't mince words when it says that the Spirit is working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. That through our actions, we can actually please 
the Lord. He's pleased in us as he's pleased in Christ. First Peter chapter 2. Hopefully you're hearing very similar language in both of these passages that we just read. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. I don't know if we think about that, but as we live in this world and we're tempted to make little of the things that God ejected a nation divorced a nation over idolatry law breaking we make little of these things we're not waging the war we're not recognizing that it's a war against our soul keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We still have a testimony as God's people, as the Israelites were supposed to have a testimony to the nations. We too, as the Israel of God, have a testimony among the nations that they would see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But we do this as we recognize at the end of the first section of Ephesians 2. We do this because we are his workmanship. We are created anew in Christ Jesus for good works that have been prepared beforehand, prepared by the workman, Christ, that we should walk in them. Let us pray. O Lord, we wonder at these wonderful ideas of redemption, of resurrection, of reconciliation, of glorification. We wonder at pleasing you, at doing things that please you. For Lord, we know that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were as useful to you as a valley of dry bones. May we rejoice and rest in Christ. May we give glory to the Spirit of God who has given us new life, who has joined us together. May we give glory to the Father. For ascending of the Son. Lord, may we look for ways to act as a unified people. Help us to not think little of your law. But in Christ, may we see that we've been given a new relationship whereby the law no longer 
condemns us, but it shows us a standard of righteousness whereby we may honor you and may you may that also work in those that see us and may be influenced by us that they would give glory to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.